So it's uh, no secret that I'm a John Grisham fan. I just started reading his latest novel, downloaded it to my Kindle this weekend. It's called The Exchange. I have not been disappointed. This is a book that is a sequel 32 years in the making. It's the sequel to one of his earliest novels, The Firm. And although in the novel form there's only 15 years between the plots, it's been 32 years since he wrote The Firm. Good stories draw us in, and they don't let us go. And Grisham is a master storyteller. From his legal knowledge to vivid descriptions that make you feel like you are actually there, from his descriptions, and then then it leads to the suspense, and, and he just holds the reader the entire time. A good story draws you in. Even if you've heard or read it before, if it's a good story, you want to hear or read it again. This morning, we begin a four-part drama. A four-part drama that even if it's familiar to you, it doesn't seem to ever grow old. We're going to be drawn in from the beginning. We will have questions. We will have suspense. We will have the drama of family. We will see contrasting images of faith and doubt and commitment. And we will even get ancient romance. But what's most important in my mind as we begin this four-part drama is what we learn about God and how God works God works in how he works in dire circumstances and how he works in just the routine of life. I would encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the eighth book in the Bible, the book of Ruth. It's right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel. It's short. It's only four chapters. And I believe each chapter kind of plays out like an act in a play. And so that's how I'm going to be approaching it this month. Well, and I'm not going to actually read the entire chapter. We're going to be in chapter 1 today, or we're calling it Act 1. I'm not going to read the entire chapter today. I'm going to read parts of it and then talk about them. And uh, we're going to see how this plays out this morning as a play. So listen as I read just the first five verses, or the prologue. Of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This play begins and tells us the setting. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. 
that's an important distinction. It's not something to just kind of skip over because the book of Ruth follows this book of Judges. The Judges, the book of Judges covers about 400 years of Israel's history. And it's uh, the history following the beginning of the occupation of the promised land. It is a very dark time in the history of the nation. In fact, it's interesting, the time of the Judges begins not in Judges 1, but you actually see the time and the cycle of the Judges in Judges 2.10. You don't have to turn there, let me just read it, because I think this is a sad description in the Bible. Judges 2.10 speaks about the generation after Joshua, who had led the people to the Promised Land and led them to, to take over the area. After Joshua and his generation died, the writer in Judges says this, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Somehow the the parents who had come out with Joshua somehow failed to teach their children what God had done, who then failed to teach their children what God had done, and now there's a whole generation who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know what he's done. And from that point on, there's a cycle in the book of Judges. It kind of goes this way. The people choose to rebel against God and serve other gods. God punishes them or disciplines them according to the conditions of the law. And that punishment is sometimes nations to oppress them. Sometimes it's crop failure. It's some way to get their attention. And eventually it works, and they cry out to God, and they repent of their sin, and God sends a person to rescue them. That person becomes a judge, not in the sense that we think of a judge. It's a judge that leads, that guides, that kind of makes decisions, that helps people with their disputes, and he leads them. But eventually that judge dies, and the people turn to other gods, and we have rinse and repeat and go through the cycle again. And it happens time and time and time. When you look at the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges doesn't really come out until the very end of the book. What I want to do is I want to read the last verse of the last chapter of Judges, and then I want to flow right into the book of Ruth. I want you to see the connection. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. That's, again, not a detail to skip over. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, beginning in verse 15, God outlines through Moses all that will come upon the people if they don't follow his laws. Earlier, he says, these are all the blessings. You're going to, have, you're going to have, live in safety and in peace. You're going to have crops. They're not going to fail. You're going to be healthy. and all. But if you don't follow me, then the crops are going to fail. Things are going to happen. In fact, one of the things he says in Deuteronomy 28, 15 is, the sky will become like bronze and the ground like iron. In other words, severe drought, no crops, hence famine. 
So I think we can conclude safely that as the book of Ruth begins, that the famine mentioned here, because it's at the time when the judges ruled, is a disciplinary judgment from God designed to call the people back to repentance. But one man did as he saw fit in his own eyes. One person decided to take his family away from the discipline of God. And he went to Moab. That, again, is another detail that is so important to this whole story. You see, Moab was not a land that the nation of Israel was friendly with. Moab was not a land that the nation of Israel was supposed to even associate with. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, again, we read in chapter 23, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Deuteronomy 23, 3-6. I'll just tip my hand. The fact that we have the story of Ruth is an amazing testimony to the grace of God. Because we will see that Ruth was a Moabite woman. And yet, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Never forget that we serve a God of amazing grace. In this ironic twist, Elimelech leaves Bethlehem. Now, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. He leaves the house of bread where there is no bread to go to the land of Moab who withheld bread from the nation of Israel. So going to Moab, in a sense, is a bit of a betrayal. He leaves his own people in a time of difficulty. He leaves his own clan. He leaves his support network. He moves away, and it's, it's his choice. Apparently, there was no one else that made that choice but him. At least that's what the story leads us to believe. And the name Elimelech, interestingly enough, means my God is king. It's, and so what a contrast between his name and his actions. He chose to do what was most expedient from a human perspective rather than to trust God in a difficult time. His wife's name, Naomi, means pleasant or gentle. And along with her two sons, they leave everything in Bethlehem and they go to Moab. And Moab was only some 30 miles away, but that's where they go. The prologue tells us why they're there, Elimelech dies. Something that we don't always get in our culture is when the, the head of the household died, not only was the wife a widow, but the children were at that point considered orphans. He dies, and later on, his sons marry, and they marry Moabite women. Let me talk about that for a minute. Not only is that 
a violation of what God said through Moses that no Moabite should enter the assembly, should be part of you. But God had also said time and again not to marry foreign women for his people. Not that God is against interracial marriage. That was never the point. The point was if you marry someone and they're following other gods, then you may be drawn away to follow those gods too. And God wanted them to follow him. We don't know why Elimelech dies, and we don't know why his two sons die. It would be wrong to speculate. And that's not the focus of the writer of this story. The focus of this story is on this tragedy that has befallen these three women in this patriarchal society. And the point of this story is here's how God works through tragedy. And this is a tragedy for both Naomi and her daughters-in-law. There's the grief accompanied with the loss of your spouses. It's there. But that grief is compounded by the fact that they are now destitute. In fact, for Naomi, she's left with no heirs. In a patriarchal society, a woman could not inherit her husband's lands. They had to go to another male within the culture, and she's in a culture that's not her own. She has nothing. We have the potential of the extinction of the line of Elimelech because his sons are now gone too. No one to carry on his name and identify as a Jew. They have nothing to provide for themselves. And that brings us to Act 1. Follow along. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old. To have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand turned, has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother in law and said goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Remember the cycle of the judges? It seems like the nation had repented. Naomi hears there's food again in the land. So she decides to go home and she decides to start the journey back to Bethlehem. It was roughly a 7 to 10 day journey because you weren't just walking 30 miles over like people run the marathon, 26 point something. It was dusty roads that weren't paved. It was rocky. It was rough terrain. 7 to 10 day walk. Orpah and Ruth tell Naomi they will go with her. 
And repeatedly, in fact, four times, she urges them to go home to their mother's house. And she urges them to go to their mother's house because they would most likely return to their home and dwell in the women's quarters. They would come home as widows. They would, they would dwell in the women's quarters, and, and some believe that uh, they would end up serving the daughters or the, 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 daughter, the sisters-in-laws that maybe were in the household until someone would come along and have mercy and marry them. It could be that Naomi is telling them to go home because she knows they can only be provided for if they marry a Moabite man. It could be that Naomi wants them to return home because she doesn't want to take them to Bethlehem and reveal to everybody that her sons and her family had violated God's law. Maybe it's what she truly said, that she would never be able to provide an heir for them. Especially not in Bethlehem. Nobody in Bethlehem would marry a Moabite woman. So she tells them both to go back. Naomi is at a a low, low point emotionally and socially. She's as low as you can get. You see, her task, her task as a woman in the culture was to bear sons so that Elimelech would have heirs and that the family name would not become extinct. And for her now, that was an impossible task. Both male heirs were dead, and she was a mother-in-law to two Moabite women. No wonder she made the statement, the Lord's hand has turned against her. She actually believed that somehow God had turned against her. Orpah returns home. She did you know, people want to blame Orpah. Don't blame Orpah. She made the best decision that was before her. She made the, the decision that seemed best. She knew she was returning home. As I said, she would have been considered a burden to her family. She would have returned home maybe to be considered a widow and have to wear widow's clothing. It was not a great thing, but for her it was better than nothing. But the Bible says, Ruth clung to Naomi. Picture that scene. They're out on the outskirts of whatever city they lived in in Moab. Orpah turns and she leaves and Ruth grabs a hold of her mother-in-law's arm and holds on to it. She's not going to let her go. The second part of Act 1. Look, Picking up in verse 15, look, said Naomi to your sister, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. 
if you've ever read the story of Ruth or heard the story of Ruth, everybody looks at this statement as so key to the book, and it is. But it's such an important statement that we need to break it down because I think what you and I sometimes think is the most important part of the statement really isn't. Ruth, first of all, says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I will go. I will stay. This is a complete commitment to Naomi as a person. Naomi, I am not going to leave your side. Naomi, I am committed to you. In fact, I would say in this moment, Ruth isn't looking for a husband She's just staying committed to her mother-in-law. She's staying committed to staying with her regardless of the circumstances. I am going to stick with you like glue. We are going to go together. Part of that is Ruth knows the terrain. And I believe she knows that to travel back would be treacherous for two women, let alone one older woman. She stays with her. But then she says, your people will be my people and your God my God. This takes, takes it a step further. And Naomi said, return to your gods. And, and by the way, just so we don't make a big deal of it, the word that's translated God and gods is the same word, and it's always plural. But in the context of Israel, they would take the plural noun God, and, or pronoun for God, and, and they make it a singular. So Naomi, we don't know what Ruth knows about Yahweh. We don't know what she knows. We know she lived in a Yahwistic home for 10 years or more, but we also know that the, the, the people that ran that home, namely Elimelech, wasn't always following God. And so we don't know how developed her theology was, but she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Now this takes it a step further. All of a sudden, Ruth is setting aside her religion, setting aside the faith of her youth, setting aside that faith system. She says, Naomi, I will embrace your faith system. Those are two very significant parts of this statement. But the one that's the kicker, the one that Naomi says finally, okay, we're going to go, is this one. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried May the Lord, or Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates us. This, I believe, is the key phrase in the amazing statement of commitment that Ruth makes. What it reveals is she's setting aside everything she has known. She's forsaking her culture. She's forsaking her heritage. The fact that she says, I will be buried in the same place that you are buried, Naomi, is no small statement. In the ancient world, where you were buried was significant. The closest we have to it in these days is some families have a family graveyard. And you can go there and see the, the graves of your ancestors and your, the people that went before you. In the ancient world, burial was significant. Just go to Genesis 50. And Jacob dies and Joseph seeks special permission from Pharaoh to take his embalmed father and to take him back and take him and bury him in the grave he dug for himself in Canaan. In the next chapter, 
Joseph has the Israelites swear that he will not be buried in Egypt, but he will be buried in the place that God is taking him. And they save his bones in an ossuary for 400 years. So that when they leave Egypt, they carried the bones of Joseph with them. And in Joshua 24, 13, they bury him on a tract of land that Jacob had purchased. You were buried in your homeland. That was significant. Ruth declaring that she will be buried is a statement to Naomi that your home will be my home. Your homeland will be my homeland. I am giving up my national identity to follow and to go with you. That is commitment. And she seals her commitment by using the sacred name of Yahweh. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And that, I believe, is when Naomi said, all right, she is really serious about this. And that's when Naomi stops urging her. And the curtain closes on scene one. Act one, scene two, begins in verse 19. The writer has chosen to move the action along, so we don't know all that went on on those seven to ten days that they walked from Moab to Bethlehem. We pick it up here. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's been 10 years, maybe a little longer. Two women come walking into town. Dusty, clothes dirty, walking through the desert. News travels, and especially in small towns, news travels. News traveled. As the curtain opens, the news is spreading through the town. Naomi's come back home. Naomi's here. Naomi, is that you? Oh, Naomi. Naomi is deeply depressed. She's humiliated. She's empty. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant and gentle anymore. That's what her name meant. She said, call me Mara. Call me bitter. You see, when Naomi left over 10 years ago, she had a husband. She had two sons. Her life was good. Her son, there was promise. There was hope for the future. The sons could marry and they could have sons and the line of, Elimelech, line of Elimelech would live on and on. Now she has nothing, no husbands, no sons, no grandsons, no inheritance. One scholar concluded this, her circumstances directly affect her outlook on life. 
She is consumed with self-pity and hopelessness. All her identity and worth were invested in her husband and her sons. Don't miss that line. All of her identity and her worth were invested in her husband and her sons. And so sure is she that her grief will be permanent that she wishes her name to be exchanged for Mara, meaning bitter. You see, even though Ruth is with her, Naomi sees herself as isolated and alone. In a unique twist, as scene two comes to an end, the writer leaves us thinking about the full circle of things. When Naomi left her husband, with her husband and sons, there was famine. There was nothing in the land. And now she returns with only Ruth accompanying her, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. It's a, a glimmer, a foreshadowing of hope, if one can only see it. And the curtain comes down on Act 1. What do we discover? What can we learn from this part of God's Word that can actually speak into our lives. I want to leave you with three simple statements. The second one actually is two parts. First this, trust God even when things look bleak. Trust God even when things look bleak. Elimelech chose to fix his problems on his own. One may try to defend him saying, oh, he was only trying to, to provide for his family. But look what he chose to do. He chose to leave his community. He chose to leave his support structure. He chose to leave the whole network of support he, he had because he was going to make life work on his own. The ultimate result was he puts his wife in a very dire and even dangerous situation. Staying in Bethlehem during a famine would have been a hard struggle. He may have even died there. No guarantees. But his family would have had their community. His family would have had their relatives. His family would have had their support network. Elimelech trusted himself and did what was right in his own eyes, and in so doing, he put his family at risk. You see, sometimes what seems to be the easy way out is not really the way forward. Trust God even when things look bleak. He does know what's coming down the road. Secondly, our circumstances do not define us. And let me add to that. Our circumstances do not define God. Our circumstances neither define us nor do they define God. Now this is going to come much more clear as we go through the study. You see, Naomi makes some very difficult statements. See, she decided that her circumstances were the defining reality in her life, and as a result, she saw God as a punishing God. She says it twice. She says earlier on, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Because my circumstances are bad, it's obviously that God doesn't like me. Because my circumstances are bad, it's obviously that God is angry with me, or maybe God doesn't care, or maybe God is not able. 
And she twice says that's when she gets to, to Bethlehem. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. God didn't choose to send her to Moab. God didn't make her life bitter. The choices she made along with her husband to go and to try to fix life on their own made things difficult. My circumstances don't define me, nor do they define God. When I allow my view of circumstances to define me, then my view of God is is dependent not on his person and his character, but on my circumstances. So if my circumstances are good, God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. I won the lottery. God is good. All the time, God is good. I got a job promotion. God is good. All the time, God is good. I got an A on that test. God is good. All the time, God is good. I lost my job. What does God have against me? What did I ever do to you, God? I got a C minus on the test. Wow, God, you didn't even help me study. When my circumstances define my God, I have a limited view of who my God is. My circumstances don't define me, nor do they define God. Bad circumstances, angry, distant, uncaring God. Great circumstances, God is there. That limits God. Third, faithful commitment must be backed up by faithful actions. Ruth makes a powerful statement of a faithful commitment. As I said earlier, I'm not sure how versed she is at this point in the God of Israel. Uh, we go through the rest of the book, you'll she, see that she needs instructions along the way of, to how to proceed and what to do. But she knew just enough Somehow in those 10 years of being married to to her husband in the home of Elimelech, she knew just enough to know that her commitment wasn't just to Naomi, but to Yahweh. She knew just enough. It's not how much faith you have. It's that you and I have faith. Ruth had faith. I don't know how much faith she had, but she had faith. Jesus said it only has to be the faith as small as a mustard seed. So this is not just a profession of faith. It is a declaration of faithfulness. She renounced her gods. She renounced her family. She renounced her nationality. She turned completely to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And verse 19 proves that her actions backed up her commitment. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. There was no turning back for Ruth. I need to take stock of my commitment to God. What am I holding on to in my heart? What am I holding on to in my life? What am I holding on to in my possessions? What am I holding on to in my relationships? What am I holding on to in my attitudes? that gets in the way of my commitment to God. Ruth let go of everything. She left it all 
behind. She comes walking into Bethlehem with Naomi and nothing else. And she's clinging to God no matter what. A God she doesn't really know very well yet. She gave up everything, and in the moment, it looks like she's doing it just for Naomi. But we never should forget one of the things that's going to be clear as we keep going through this drama. God is always there, and God is always aware. God knows my circumstances. Even if I haven't shared my struggle with anyone else, I've kept it all inside. God knows. God knows my circumstances. God knows my heart. Let me confess something for you, to you. I was really nervous about this whole project this week. You see, we had done our part, right? We had gotten the, the pews out and everything, and, and uh, we had gotten the lights all done. But now we were dependent on others. And, and they said, we can get it done in two days. And I'm going, man, that's a big job. you got to pull all that carpet out. you got to put all the new stuff down. you got to make it look good. I mean, when you look at this, there are cuts right over here, little teeny cuts. I mean, angles. This is not an easy room to do, this whole platform. And I'm going, uh, we, had a, we had a group here yesterday that rented the gym for a retreat. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, are we going to get that fireside room? I mean, what if we have to wait, you know, Two days, three days to even walk on the carpet. Are we going to get it done? And I had to time and time and time again come back and say, God, I got to let this go. I have a sermon to prepare on being faithful. <laughs> I got to let this go. I got to trust you and trust the people who are the professionals that know how to do their job. I got to let it go. And you can ask my wife. God answered my prayer. Even this morning when I had made a mistake with the sound system and didn't get things hooked up right and am crawling under that whole console there to look for one cable, I trusted God to help me. I, I, I actually am under the soundboard there saying, oh, God, give me eyes to see. <laughs> and he did. God knows all that stuff. And we're the better people when we know how to truly leave it in his hands. He knows what is best, and he loves me more than I can fully explain, and he calls me to commit to him and you as well. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for just what we've learned in the first act, the first chapter. There's so much more. These are going to be an exciting uh, three more weeks as we go through this and see how you work in ways that no one could have imagined or written up. And I pray, Lord, that as we go through this story, that you will speak to our hearts and encourage us as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.